All right. Well, it's great to see you. What a, a privilege to be together this Saturday. Uh, it's been a joy to get to spend some time with you, uh, some of you this week. Uh, hopefully next time that we come, we'll come for longer and be able to spend uh, more time with uh, more of you. Looking forward to tomorrow. Can't wait uh, to be able to preach here at Living Hope again. And also looking forward to today. I love uh, talking about marriage and family. We're going to spend the day talking about marriage and family. Really, uh, we could spend a week talking about marriage and family. We could spend even longer than that. I love talking about marriage and family. I love reading about marriage and family. I love thinking about what the Bible has to say about marriage and family uh, for a lot of different reasons. One of the the reasons I love thinking about this, obviously, is because I'm married and I have a a family. As you know, I've been uh, married a long time now. It keeps getting longer, but uh, we're at 26 years uh, right now. My uh, parents just celebrated their 65th wedding anniversary this week, so it was good that I was here, able to celebrate with them. But 65 years married, uh, that's a long time. Some of you haven't even been alive uh, half of that yet, so 65 years married. And I love talking about marriage because this is not, and family, because this is not really something that you get better at without thinking about it. And so it's important for us to take a step back and think about marriage and family because it is important. It's hard to think of a subject that is going to have much more of an impact on your life and on the life of the people around you. It's certainly important. In God's great plan, so uh, marriage isn't just about you, obviously, and your family isn't just about you, but it's part of God's design to bring glory to himself. This is an important institution, marriage and, and, and family, when it comes to God's glory, but also when it comes to your own good. Uh, God designed marriage and he designed family uh, for your joy. There's this is something that he intends to bring you happiness and to bring you peace. And so as we think about today what the Bible says about marriage and family, we're really thinking about how to increase your joy and how to increase the joy of people around you. And so this is an important subject. I'm glad we get to spend some time thinking about it today. And I think we need to think long and hard about it, not only because it's important, but also because... Uh, the, the fact is that many people are having uh, major problems in their marriages and in their families. Obviously, uh, unbelievers, for sure, we know uh, we go out there and we speak with unbelievers. And there's hardly uh, many, uh, there's hardly any unbelievers who really seem very happy in their marriages and, uh, and sometimes in their families. I remember uh, talking to many people about marriage, even here in Africa, and... Uh, People saying, why would I get married? And there were people who I would speak with about marriage and they were almost suspicious of marriage. And uh, just kind of speaking as if they had never met anyone who really was enjoying marriage. Uh, There are uh, many people who, uh, they start off their marriages strong. I I don't know that I've ever done a wedding where you had two people standing there uh, looking at each other and saying, I hate you. Usually a wedding day is pretty happy. And yet, even though many people start off their marriages strong, saying they love each other, you don't meet many people who say on their wedding day, I can't wait till we get divorced or I can't wait till my uh, wife is so mad at me that she doesn't want to see me. In the same room as her, you don't. People don't speak like that usually on their wedding day, and yet, unfortunately, there are many people whose marriages are like that, and whose families are like that, and not always very long afterwards, people have tremendous problems in their marriages and in their families. And as a, a pastor, I get to speak to many of those people, and sometimes when you sit down to talk with people about what's going on in their marriages and in their families, the problem seems so complicated and actually uh, confusing. And uh, you are sitting there with your Bible and you're looking at the person who's come to talk to you and you're thinking, wow, what do I say? This is, this is, uh, this is really 
been like 15 years of hurting one another, and uh, I'm not sure where to begin. And yet what you often find when people are having problems that seem complicated is that many of those complicated problems uh, come down to some pretty simple misunderstandings. And so I want to talk in our first session here about some basic foundational issues when it comes to marriage and family that you absolutely have to get right. And in our times with the men and times with the women, we'll get more specific and more practical. But now I want to talk about some basic foundational issues. It's kind of like if you're having problems with your computer Sometimes a computer problem can seem so complicated and you think this thing can never be fixed and so you actually finally have to call somebody on the phone and ask them for help. And usually when you call somebody on the phone and ask them for help with your computer, one of the very first questions they ask you is, is your computer plugged in? You know, they know that many people think their problems are so complicated but they actually come down to like something very, very simple. And so we want to talk about some simple, basic, foundational issues when it comes to marriage and family. And there's hardly anything more foundational than the question, uh, what is marriage? So we're going we're gonna to talk about four questions in particular. What is marriage? Why is there marriage? Uh, what is the family for? And what makes a successful family? But... We're going to begin with this question. What is marriage? That is a a pretty foundational, fundamental thing that we have to get right. And in fact, it's so fundamental that it almost seems too simple. Like, oh man, I came to a conference for a Saturday to talk about the family. And he's beginning with this question. What is marriage? Are you kidding me? And yet, the, the thing is, many people are confused about that question, actually. Where I come from in the United States, definitely if you ask 10 different people what is marriage, you'll get 10 different answers because everybody thinks they're their own king and they get to define things however they want to define them. And so uh, really that question is actually a controversial question uh, in the United States. And you know what? It's not just a controversial question in the United States. It's also a question that many uh, people here are confused about. I would uh, almost dare you to go ask some of your friends, what is marriage? And see how they respond. I would think that some of your friends would look at you and say, that is a hard question. What is marriage? And I I can say that with kind of confidence because I've sat down counseling people. I've sat down counseling people even here in uh, South Africa. And uh, I learned over time that my first question should be, are you married? And I've sat down and asked people that question, and I've had a wife say, yes, we are married, and a husband say, no, we're not married, which obviously makes for a confusing uh, marriage if one of you thinks you're married and one of you doesn't know if you're married. And so it's a, it's a question that seems simple, but it is one that many people actually are a little bit confused about, and that's a problem because it's hard to do anything well if you don't know what it is. And uh, that, anytime you, you do something for the first time, one of your first questions is going to be, what is it exactly that I'm doing? And if you don't know what you're doing, then you're going to have a hard time doing it. And so if you're going to have a marriage that glorifies God, you need to know what marriage is. If you're going to have a family that glorifies God, you need to know what marriage is. This is kind of like a basic building block. And... Marriage is something. That's, that's the thing. Marriage is something. It's not everything. It is a different kind of relationship. It is not just anything that you want it to be. There is something called marriage that is defined. And it's not defined by us. It's not just a, a human invention. That's how some people think marriage came to be, you know. Uh, way back in time, there was a man, uh, there's a whole group of people kind of living in a cave maybe, and uh, men and women, and, and, and they were going out killing uh, bison or, or animals, and 
somebody said to the other, you know what, we should probably figure out whose family is which so that we can uh, make it easier to provide. That is not how marriage came into existence. Marriage is not a human idea. Actually, marriage was created by God. We know as believers it was designed by God and it was designed by God to be a unique kind of relationship. A relationship that is different than other relationships. And one word that helps you get an idea of what marriage is is the word covenant. And so as people think about a marriage, if you ask them, what kind of relationship is marriage? There are several different ways that people might describe it. So some people would say marriage is a sacrament, and that would mostly be uh, the Catholic uh, Church. Others would say marriage is a contract. And uh, the Bible would say marriage is actually a covenant. So the Catholic Church would say marriage is a a sacrament. It's like this mysterious relationship where if you do it correctly in the church, Jesus is present in some mystical way and he dispenses grace to you as you get married. And that's why sometimes even in Africa people feel like you have to get married in a church or otherwise the special stuff doesn't happen. And yet, really, that's an idea that doesn't come from the Bible, but just comes from tradition. Other people think, yeah, marriage is not a sacrament, but this would be more just unbelievers would think of marriage as a, a, a contract. So it's a two people who decide that they're going to live together for a certain period of, of time and so that they don't get too hurt from one another they enter into a kind of contract with one another. But the Bible says marriage is actually something different than a sacrament and, and bigger than a contract. It is a covenantal relationship. Proverbs chapter 2, verse 17, it's actually talking about the adulterous woman and explaining the problem with committing adultery. And the writer of Proverbs says... The adulteress forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. And so the writer of Proverbs is describing marriage and describing it as a a companionship and a covenant. But a covenant not just with between the husband and the wife, but actually a covenant that both individuals make with God. Other passages in scripture like Malachi chapter 2 verse 14 and Ezekiel 16.8 describe marriage this way as well as a covenant. Now, we don't talk about that word covenant. We don't use that word covenant very much. But a, a covenant is a relationship you enter into with someone who you don't naturally have a relationship with. So there's not a relationship between you. But in a covenant, you decide, you decide to enter into a relationship with someone and make promises to them, a, a certain kind of relationship to them, you enter into where there are obligations that you have with them that you didn't have before and that you are going to be held to and be accountable for. So uh, a good illustration of a covenant actually would be adoption. When you adopt a child, what happens? You don't just bring that child into your home and give them some food. You don't just see a a kid on the street and uh, sort of smile at them. When you adopt a child, it's actually you're bringing them into your home and you're entering into a covenant with that child. You don't naturally have a relationship with that child. You actually don't even owe that child anything from uh, the world's point of view. But you are choosing to bring that child into your home and you're making certain promises to that child. And you're going to be held accountable, actually, for the promises that you made to that child. That's a a covenant. Adoption is a covenant. And marriage, actually, is a a covenant. It's a little bit like a a contract, but a contract is too small a word. It's bigger than just a temporary business relationship. It's, It's bigger than that in that it is personal. It's not just paper. It's people. It's hearts. And it's bigger Because it's not just between two people, actually. It's between the two people and God. Marriage is a covenant 
that you make with another person and that you make before God and with God. And so when you get married, what is happening? You are entering into a new kind of relationship. You were not married and now you are married. It's not like kind of married. You were not married and now you are married. And what happened? You entered into a covenant with a particular person where you make promises to them and you also make promises to God about your relationship with them. For what? For what? What are you covenanting to? That's kind of an important question. What is marriage? It's a covenant. It's 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 involves a, a new kind of relationship with someone. But what exactly does that relationship involve? And you find out the answer to that question in the very beginning of the Bible. If you open up your Bible to Genesis chapter 2. Uh, you know, of course, Genesis uh, 1 and 2 is Moses describing what happened at creation. And it is, it is big, you know, Genesis 1 and 2. There are uh, universes that are being created here. And yet, at the very end of Genesis 1 and 2, it's almost like Moses pauses and, and zones in on marriage. He wants to talk about what it means to be married. After describing the way in which God created the universe, Moses looks at a man and woman and describes the covenant of marriage and identifies the basic elements in verse 24. He says, for this reason or therefore. And what's happening is that Moses is going to draw an implication from the way God created the universe and specifically the way he created man and woman for our lives today. And so it's almost like we're sitting in Moses' living room and he's showing us a DVD of the creation of the universe. And it's amazing. And we're seeing God creating man and woman. And at this point in the DVD, after he's shown us just worlds coming into being, he hits the pause button on the remote and the screen freezes and he turns to those of us who are living after the Garden of Eden, who are living actually after the fall. And he is saying to us, I want you to know something about how God's original design for marriage remains normative for us today. Every marriage now should follow the precedent of God's pattern back then. Which is what? Moses goes on. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And so even though that's just one short, simple verse, it is uh, absolutely foundational for everything the Bible teaches about marriage and, and, and family and includes all the really the basic elements of what it means to be married, what kind of covenant you're entering into, and what are the elements exactly? First of all, he says, leave. A man shall leave his father and mother. And uh, what he's saying there is when you get married, there's a covenant. You're, you're entering into a, a kind of relationship with someone. What kind of relationship are you entering into, into? First of all, you are promising that you are going to leave your previous family. There's going to be a change, actually, in your relationship status. And this was a culture that honored father and mother. So this is radical because really what Moses is saying is you're promising that your primary relationship, your primary human relationship, isn't going to be with your parents and this family any longer, but now it is going to be with your wife. And obviously we see here, it wasn't just the, the woman who made all the sacrifices either. He says, a man shall leave his father and his mother. Leave, that's the first part of the covenant. Cleave, that's about commitment really. The word for cleave is used elsewhere in the Bible when you would uh, bring two pieces of metal together and make them one. And so 
when you get married, you are making a promise, not just for that day. I love you today. I'm for you today. You're actually making a promise. I am for you when you're 85 years old and uh, you're, I'm having to change your nappy. I'm making a, a promise. I'm a young person here marrying you and entering into a covenant with you. But this covenant that I'm entering into with you is not just for right now. I'm making promises not just about how I love you right now. I'm making promises about how I'm going to love you 70 years, 60 years from now, 65 years from now, when you're falling on the floor and you can't get up. When you're having a hard time remembering things that you used to be able to remember. I'm entering into a covenant with you that is a, a, a lifelong covenant. Marriage, what are the elements that are involved in this covenant that you're making when you get married? One, it's to leave. There's a change in the relationship status. Two, it's to cleave. I'm committing myself to you. And three, we are to become one flesh. And that is about union, union. And obviously, if you're going to have a marriage that honors God, you have to recognize what you're doing when you get married. You're entering into a new kind of relationship with someone else where you're making these promises to them and to God. You're saying, you are going to be my priority. You're going to be my priority human relationship. Not every relationship that I have is the same. The relationship that I have with you as an individual, as a human, is different than the relationships that I have with other people. So I was talking to uh, someone recently, a pastor, and uh, his, 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 his wife is sick, and, uh, and yet he's pastoring in a place where the members of his church, it's hard for them to understand him not meeting with them because he has to take care of his wife. And so they will struggle when he has to say to them, hey, I need to make a priority out of my wife. Because it's hard for them to understand that relationships are different. We don't have the same responsibilities to everyone. It would be impossible. As we seek to honor God and fulfill the commands that he's given us, one of the ways God helps us is by creating different kinds of relationships. And so when I think about loving my neighbor, certainly I need to think about loving everyone. But I don't love everyone. I don't have the same responsibility to love everyone in the exact same way. And so I have a unique relationship as a husband to my wife that is actually different than the responsibility that I have to anyone else. That's part of the promise that you're making when you get married. This person is going to be uh, my priority. Now, the fact that she's my priority doesn't mean that I no longer have any responsibilities to anyone else as long as I take care of my wife. But certainly it does mean as I think about my life, I do have a unique responsibility to my wife. She's a priority. When you get married, you're entering into a covenant. And one of the promises you're making is this person is going to be my priority. You're making promises, like I said, about commitment. And you're committing yourself to a person. You're committing yourself to them, whether they are the kind of person that you wish they were or not. You are making the kind of commitment. We, some, the Bible does have, there's a place for divorce, and we can talk about that at another time. So the Bible recognizes we're living in a sinful world, and there are certain times when this covenant is broken to such a devastating degree that there is a, a, a place for divorce. But part of what you need to understand as you look at the way God designed marriage to be is that Divorce, by definition, is, is devastating because it's, it's a little bit like I often tell people, if, if you're going to get divorced, it's kind of like 
you're out hiking and a huge boulder falls on top of you and you can't move. And so you, you don't know what to do and you realize to, to be able to survive, I'm going to have to cut off my arm. So if you're going to cut off your arm, obviously that's a pretty big decision. That's not one that you do lightly, right? Because you're not going to have an arm any longer once you do that and the kind of pain that's involved in that. And the way God designed the, the marriage relationship to be, it's a, it's a commitment and it's a, the kind of commitment that if you, if you get out of it, you don't get out of it without, without losing an arm, without significant amount of pain. And that's actually for your, for your good, really. And it's a, a commitment that you're making to a unique physical and spiritual and emotional relationship with another person where you are so, you're so bound together that it's like we could say you are uh, one flesh. Uh, one man puts it like this. In the one flesh union of marriage, all the boundaries between a man and a woman fall away and the married couple comes together completely as long as they both shall live. In real terms, two selfish me's start learning to think like one unified us building a new life together with one total everything, one story, one purpose, one reputation, one bed, one suffering, one budget, one family, and so forth. Marriage removes all barriers and replaces them with a comprehensive oneness. It is this all-encompassing unity that sets marriage apart as marriage, more profound than even the most intense friendship. Friends have much in common, but wise friends also have boundaries. They do not share everything. And there's much good in friendship, limited as it is. But what distinguishes marriage is the all-inclusive scope of its claims upon both the man and the woman. The two become one flesh, one mortal life fully shared with total openness, total access, total solidarity for the rest of their earthly days. That's marriage. Those are the, the basic elements of marriage according to God. That's like, that's like a, a blueprint. Now, what for? That's what is marriage. But why? Why did, God, why did God design a relationship like this? Which I think is an important question as well. And one reason we know it's a, an important question is because it's another one of those questions that the Bible answers at the very beginning. In Genesis chapter 2, actually before God explains what marriage is, he tells us, what marriage is for in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. And you know the story. Genesis 1 and 2 is like, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. And then all of a sudden, God is like, it's not good. And that is actually before the fall. So that stands out and makes us stop and ask, what exactly is going on? What possibly could not be good? And the answer is man being alone. Why? Because he needs a helper. And what does helper mean? Someone who comes to the aid of someone else, obviously. But it's not a small word. You look through the Bible, and the word that's used here for helper often refers to divine assistance. Sometimes it's used to describe an army coming to help uh, win a war. One reason God made marriage is because man needed a helper. Now, why did man need a helper? In the context, if you look three verses back in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, he needed a helper because God gave man a job to do. He, put, he took man and he put him in the Garden of Eden and he put him in the Garden of Eden to work and keep the Garden of Eden. And you can connect that job back with Genesis 1 being fruitful and multiplying and subduing the earth. Man was put on the planet to make the whole planet basically the Garden of Eden, a place where God and man could enjoy fellowship. And he was put here to fill the world with other images of God who would be glorifying God all over the planet. 
And obviously, he couldn't do that by himself. He needed help accomplishing that task. And so God designed a partner suitable to him. There's something about the woman and there's something about this marriage partnership that would enable the man to fulfill that mission better than he could by himself. So to understand marriage, you start with God and and you allow God to define what marriage is. And then you have to go a step further and think about God's purpose for marriage. Why are you married? Why are you married? And this is what actually a lot of people get wrong. Because the answer for a lot of people, why did you get married, is what? Well, the sad, sadly, some people will say, because I was 30. Because I was, like, was old and I needed to get married. Uh, some people would say, because, you know, how are the dishes going to get washed? Um, some people say, because, like, my family wanted me to get married. There was a lot of pressure. But... For many people, the answer to why do, did I get married stops with themselves. And they don't even think to question that. It's a completely inward focus. And so in America, the answer they might give to why they got married is we like each other. Uh, this person makes me happy. I, I make them happy. And that's nice, of course. But what I'm saying is that looking back at God's design for marriage... Marriage is about something bigger than just us liking each other or just us being able to pay the bills or something or just us having a good friendship. If the ultimate goal of marriage is just you having a nice life, your ultimate goal for marriage is too small. Marriage is about serving God. That's why God designed marriage. He gave man a mission And he realized man could not fulfill that mission well by himself. And so he designed a helper to enable him to fulfill the mission that he gave him. That's the purpose of marriage. Marriage is about serving God. How? Well, big picture, if we fast forward to the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 5. It's part of God's great design, Paul says, to put the glories of the gospel on display. And so God has a plan to make himself look great through what Jesus is doing with the church. And part of his plan to accomplish that is through Christian marriage. So a Christian marriage is not just about this person and this person, you know, having a nice time together. It's actually about these two people Partnering together to put the gospel on display so that God will be glorified here and actually in the universe with the supernatural powers and authorities. And so a Christian marriage is is big because it's about the glory of God. And then more specifically, if we just want to ask more specifically, how does marriage do that. Well, one of the ways marriage does that, if we go back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, we see that God, before the fall, created man and woman in his image, and he said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so fruitful and multiply refer to having children, and having children fits into God's plan for bringing this world into submission. You remember how man was made in the image of God and one of his functions was to serve as God's representative here on earth. And part of how he was to do that was by having children who would spread throughout the world and help him represent God. And after sin, of course, the problem is that man doesn't always seek to represent God. And so even though they have those children, those children don't always bring about good and blessing which is part of why God saves Abraham, makes him into a people who would belong to him and who would have children who were supposed to bring blessing into the world. And so when an Israelite family had children, they, God's purpose was that these children would carry on and extend the task of glorifying God and representing God in this world. And of course, that's part of the purpose of Christians having children as well. Why is there marriage? What is it for? A man and a woman are entering into a lifelong covenantal companionship where they can serve God 
by seeking to be fruitful and fill the earth, and by taking dominion over creation, subduing it and ruling over it to God's glory. That's what marriage is. That's why marriage exists. This is this is big. Now let's press on this a little bit and ask what exactly is the family for? How how does marriage and how does family fulfill this function of glorifying God this way? What is God doing in all this? What exactly does he want to accomplish through this relationship that he created? And there are a a lot of different texts that we can look at which describe what God wants to happen in marriages and families so that he would be glorified. Uh, for example, if you, and maybe you could just write some of these down, but if you look at Genesis chapter 18, verses 17 through 19, God talks to, to Abraham, and he explains, actually, why he's actually here talking to himself, God, and uh, explaining why he's chosen Abraham. And he says, uh, Genesis chapter 18, uh, verse 19, I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised to him. And so God wants Abraham to train his family how to obey his law. That's part of the, the purpose of a family. Part of the purpose of the family is to be a place where people learn how to glorify God by being obedient to God's law. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 9 through 10. Deuteronomy chapter 6 as well. God wants the family uh, to be a place where people learn about salvation and the character of God. He specifically wants parents to teach their children. Only take care, Moses says, and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, unless they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. How on the day that you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, the Lord said to me, Gather the people to me, that I may let them hear my words, so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth, and that they may teach their children to do so. God wants the family to be a place where you can learn about what he's done. And, and where you are taught to, to put your hope in him so that you won't disobey him. Psalm 78, 1 through 7, you can look at that on your own and see how David affirms that. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 11, talks about the family, the discipline of a father, actually. And he, he talks about how the family is to be a place where people learn how serious sin is. And where they learn how to be holy. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 24. God wants the family to be a place where sin is rebuked. And where sin is corrected. In uh, Psalm 68.6, God talks about the family being a place, a, a home for the lonely. And so in God's design, he wants the family to be a place where people have friendships. Proverbs 10.1, God wants parents to be deeply invested in their children's lives. That's his normal pattern for the family. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 4 and 8, families should take care of each other financially. Proverbs 22.6, parents are to teach their children habits and ways of living that you will keep for the rest of your life. Proverbs 31.10 through 12, talks about this woman who is uh, married to a man, and what is she doing? She's seeking to do him good all the days of her life. And so the family should be a, a place where you're able to count on one another and where each person is seeking to do the other person as much good as they possibly can. If you think back on some of those verses, I know they came at you at fast, but maybe I can summarize what is the family designed to do. I can summarize those verses with just some pictures that will help you remember. The family is to be a classroom. 
And so it's designed to be a place where you learn the necessary information to live life. And so what happens when someone doesn't have access to a good school? I think we all know that, that some people are so privileged because they get to go to this like really special school. And other people, man, it's a struggle for them because like they're trying to learn English maybe from somebody who doesn't even know English. And so we all know when someone doesn't get to go to a good school, that actually has an impact on them for a long time. And, and the same is true when it comes to families. The family is intended to be a classroom. It's, uh, it's, it's supposed to be a place where you learn lessons about God and about how to live at a very young age. I know sometimes as a pastor, one of the things that uh, breaks my heart is that you meet people and you realize, okay, you're 40 years old and what I'm talking to you about is something your father should have talked to you about when you were three. And because you didn't have that father who was doing the job that he should have done in the home, now you're experiencing some of the consequences of that. The family is uh, designed to be a classroom. It's designed to be a place of, of safety. One thing we can count on in life is that we're going to face difficulties, and those difficulties will come in all sorts of different forms, financial, social, physical, spiritual. And God knows this, so he's designed the family to be a place of refuge from the storm, which of course is so why it's so sad when the family's not a place of refuge. Imagine, I remember one of the saddest stories I heard, maybe not the saddest story I ever heard, but a very sad story, was a young man who was telling me he was being chased by people who wanted to, um, who beat him up, they wanted to hurt him physically, and he had to run past his own home. He couldn't, he knew I can't go into my home because I'm not going to be helped there. So he had to run past his own home to some, somebody else's home down the road because he knew there's, no, there's not a place of safety in my home. And so that's not, our hearts grieve with that because that's not what God designed the family, that's not how he designed the family to function. The family is to be a place of, of safety where people enjoy one another, where they spend time with each other, where they look out for each other. The family is a relational training center. So it's designed to be a place where you learn how to do relationships. So this is in terms of those of you who have children, and even older children, really, but I hope you understand that part of what you're trying to do is you're trying to help them learn how to deal with conflict and learn how to be good friends to other people. And so uh, part of the reason why you step in when your children are yelling at each other and why they, when you step in is not just because you like it quiet uh, and because you just sort of would prefer to be able to watch TV without kids beating on each other. You know, the, part of the reason why you step in and why you don't just like smack them and be like, what's your problem? Why do you... Why are you hurting your brother? Why you step in? You're like, no, this child's like four years old. He came out of the womb very selfish. He doesn't know how to handle conflict. When somebody takes his toy, he thinks, I must attack them to get my toy back. That's part of why God put me there, is to teach my son. Oh, when somebody does something you don't like, you don't hit them back no matter what they do. What, this is how you deal with conflict instead. And what you're doing is you're giving them the tools that they need to be able to be peacemakers later in life. And you're giving them the tools in, in your family that they need to be able to have deep friendships with other people later in life. The family is a Theological training center. It's where you're supposed to learn who God is. Proverbs sees the family as a, a wisdom training center. So Proverbs, the way it talks about life is it's like there's two paths. And there's one path that can take you to death and destruction. And there's another path where it takes you is to uh, life and, and blessing. 
And you're always, every day, you're having to choose which path are you going to take because there's so many things coming at you all the time. And family is supposed to be a place where where you're helping each other identify the right path. This is the path to life and blessing. This is the path to death and cursing. It's to be a place where you learn how to live. And as you can see, I think the Bible's description of, of marriage and what's, what's supposed to happen in the family is huge. And I think we need to say that loudly and as clearly as we can. The family is incredibly important. One of the reasons we're spending this day and really we should spend the next month talking about marriage and family is because of how significant a role God planned marriage and family relationships to have. You get this wrong... It's hard to get much else right, which, of course, is why Satan's always attacking it. Why do you think he's always attacking it? You go for the foundational. You take the wheels off the car. The car's going to have a hard time going anywhere, right? And you know that even personally. If you look back on your family growing up and it was difficult, that's a huge issue in your life now. We give thanks to God for his grace And the way in which he can take evil and accomplish good. Uh, Joseph's own brother sold him into slavery. And yet God used that to accomplish good. That doesn't get much worse than sitting in a, you know, like a slave trader's uh, ox cart with your hands shackled, looking at your brothers laughing as you're being sold into slavery. So it doesn't get much worse than that. And yet God was able to accomplish good. But the reality is that was evil. I was evil. And so if you grew up in a home where these things weren't happening, that's right. It's, it's right to be sad about that. That's not the way God designed the family to be. And we give praise because he can accomplish good, but that's not the way he designed the family to be. And if you look back on your life and your family was good, there's a deep sense of joy in your life that comes from that. But it's funny. There's very few people who look back and... Uh, it was neutral. They're like, well, it wasn't either a good or a bad. It didn't have any impact on my life, unless the person's really, really not in touch with reality. Uh, if you meet a man without a father who never knew his father, I met a man, uh, he was 35 years old, and I said, what are you doing in Pretoria? He says, I- I've never met my father. I'm searching for my father. Like there's this huge hole in his life. Or you meet a, a husband whose wife is unfail- unfaithful. There's nothing, no pain that compares to that in his life. There's hardly anything that has more of an impact on the course of our lives than our families. And so if if our families are broken, it can feel like we're broken. This is a big issue. And so we need to think about how how do we live as a husband and wife? How do we create these kinds of families that are accomplishing what God wants them to accomplish? Because of the impact a broken family can have on us personally, but also on society. I've heard, I'm sure you've heard people say, strong marriages results in strong families, results in strong societies. And the Bible makes it clear in many different ways that the family is of fundamental importance to God's program. That's part of why we read about it in Genesis 1 and 2 before we even read about government. Even before we read about churches. The basic building block for every other social institution is the family. The Bible shows the impact a family can have by describing the negative consequences. I think of Exodus chapter 25, verse 5, where it talks about how the sins of a father can have an impact generationally. You, you, the decisions you make as a, a couple, they don't just impact you. They impact generations. That is true in a negative way, but that's also true in a positive way. You have a, a family that is doing what God calls that family to do. It's going to have an impact generationally. You may have met individuals and you're like, Wow, man, you are like so mature. And, uh, and it just, it's like you know how to deal with conflict. And uh, just, you, you get married and 
it's hard, but you, you know what marriage is for. And you're like, How, where did this blessing come from? And you realize, ah, this person has been being trained by his father for this since he was a child. And that father's work is going to have an impact on his son, but not just his son, but actually on his grandson. I think of my own life. There are certain sins that I struggle with, probably that I learned from my family that I have to put off. But there are also certain advantages that I have. That I, When we got married, I didn't even think to struggle with that because of the fact that my parents sought to fear God. We see how important the family is in that God has made the way one acts in his family a test for church leadership. So when God says, actually, um, I'm going to tell you what is required of elders and deacons. One of the things he says is you have to look at a man's family. How does he manage his home? And if he doesn't manage his home well, he's disqualified from being a pastor or from being a deacon. Which tells us to God, this is an important, important issue. And it's one that we need to take seriously. And ultimately, one of the reasons we need to take it seriously is because, of course, of the way in which our families are supposed to glorify God. God uses the family as a means of reflecting what he's like. I heard a sermon a while back. It was called The Glory of the Family. What is the glory of the family? The glory of the family is that it reflects the glory of God. The family helps us understand things about the relationship of the members of the Trinity and even the role they play in our salvation. It helps us understand how God relates to us. And it's our families that put God on display to the world. Which means when Christian marriages and Christian families aren't working, that's a big deal. Because it's a missed opportunity, because it hurts us, but it's a big deal because it's a a bad representation of God. It's a broken picture. And that's part of why I'm so glad that you're here. Talking marriage and family. This is good for you. This is good for you. But it's bigger than that. This is about how you can bring glory to God. One of the primary ways you can bring glory to God. But it's hard. It gets complicated. We all know that. Marriage and family. And so if you're going to have a marriage that is good for you and brings glory to God, it helps sometimes to go back to the basics and and start simple. First of all, what is marriage? Do you understand what you did when you got married? Or if you're not married yet, are you understanding what you're going to do when you get married? Sometimes people will put more attention to buying a new car than they will to thinking about what they're going to do when they get married. There, there are people I'll be like, you know, they're about to get married. They're like, Pastor, I'm going to get married in like uh, five weeks. Can, can I meet you once to talk about it? I'm like, seriously? Do you realize how big this is? Like, we need to sit and, and prepare for this. You would do more work to like figure out where, where you're going to go to school than you are doing to getting married. And this is one of the most important things in your life. Do you understand what marriage is. And if you are married, do you remember what you covenanted to? Do you recognize what you, what you promised? And then why did you get married? Why, if you're thinking about marriage and you want to make it work and bring glory to God, you need to think about why you're married. And, and make sure that you know that you're, you're not the hero of this story. You're not even the hero of your marriage. So many of us, one fundamental shift that we could make that would really help us is deep down we think we're kings of the world. And it's really confusing that other people don't treat us like kings of the world. You know, a king enters in. He has certain expectations, right? And when people don't meet those expectations, bang! It's like, where are my soldiers? Let's take this person out. And we know, we never say we're kings of the world, but a lot of us, that's how we really deep down think. We're kings of the world. And you know how I know we think that? The way we respond when somebody doesn't treat us the way that we like. When things don't go the way that we like. 
You know, in a movie, Al and I were talking about this. When Tom Cruise, maybe you know Tom Cruise, he's an actor. Just imagine a famous actor. When he shows up at a movie uh, set to film that movie, he has certain expectations. Like, right? Because he's Tom Cruise. He's like the main guy in the movie. So he's expecting people to bring him food and water and, you know, like everything he says, he's like this. They're like combing his hair. But when an extra shows up, you know, some guy that's just like in the movie for one second, he doesn't have those same expectations. And if he does, he's going to be really confused. Like he shows up and he thinks he's Tom Cruise. He's like, where's my uh, trailer? They're like, trailer, man. You're like in this movie for one second. I don't even know your name. You're just walking in the background. And yet many of us are confused in life because we think we're the Tom Cruise, you know? We're the main, we're the main character in this movie. And we're not the main character. We're not even the main character in our marriages. <laughs> Jesus is the main character in our marriages. He, he's, he, this marriage exists for his glory. And so it's not about me and what I want and how I like it. It's about how do I exist in this relationship in a way that can bring the most glory to God. Because that's actually what this marriage is about. And then, of course, you need to think about what marriage is, why marriage is, and what is the family for. And as you think about your families, and maybe some of you are going to have families, think about what, what, what do we want most for our family? What is it? What are, what, what, are, what are we trying to do in this, this home? What, did, what does God want to accomplish in this home? And what do I need to, to know and how do I need to grow to be able to make this family everything that God wants it to be? Because ultimately, we don't really want to have a successful family according to the world's standards. We want to have a successful family according to God's standards. And maybe I can just close by asking you to think a little bit about that. What is it that makes a successful family exactly? What would, how would you define that? It's, I think it's good to step back and say, what is the win? <laughs> what, what, what actually, uh, what is it that we want? Because, you know, your culture has a lot of things to tell you about what a successful family looks like. My culture definitely has a lot of things to tell us. Usually it has to go with going to a certain university, getting a certain job, and not hating each other. Those would be the three. You know, that's a successful family. But as Christians, our view of a successful family, it's, it shouldn't come from just what the world says because they're living according to a whole different story. We go back to the Word of God and we ask, well, what, how does God look at the world and what would God's definition of a successful family be? And what do you think? What would be some of the things that would be a success? I think, obviously, you know, what you're praying for is that every person in your family would know Jesus as Savior and Lord. You would want your, every person in your family to look to the Word of God as their standard and guide for living. That they would have a God-centered view of the world. That they would be uh, people who want what God wants and that what God what matters to God matters to them the most. That they would be people who are living for eternity now. That they, they really want to live for eternity. That they're good at confessing sins. And they're good at asking for forgiveness. That they would be growing spiritually. That they would know how to grow spiritually. That they're part of a good church. That they're ministering to others. That they're reaching out to the lost. That they know how to study the Bible. And they do study the Bible. That they, they've learned how to talk in a way that builds others up, that they know how to love other people, they know how to be a good friend. And there's more, I'm sure, but I think that's probably enough to begin it. And even what I just described there is going to take work, it's going to take prayer, and it's going to take work. Few families get better without work, and yet it's, yet it's worth it, this work. Because what can you work on in your life that's really more important than Marriage, than your marriage and, and your family. Uh, personally, it's going to have an impact on you. If you want to benefit yourself, you, you definitely want to work on your family, but more importantly, for the glor- glory of God. And so next session, I'm going to give you a, a place to start. Marta and I will split up and give you a place to start where you can begin to work 
specifically on improving your marriages and your family. But if you're married, maybe one of the things you can take away from this session, and even if you're not married, write down what you're committing to when you get married. Um, And even if you are married, write down what you committed to. What did I commit to specifically? And then pray to God, Lord, please help me keep my promise. Because this wasn't just a promise I made to this person. It was actually a promise I made to you about this person. And then look at what you wrote. Look at, your, look at what you wrote and then look at your spouse, person you're married to, and reaffirm that. Look in their eyes and say, honey, I want you to know that you are my priority. You are my primary human relationship. And if they laugh, you have a problem. If they're like, thanks for saying that. I, I don't believe it at all. Then you have a problem. You can't just be like, you're wrong. You are. Say, no, I'm not. And then you, could be, no, you say, honey, oh, you don't feel like you're my primary human relationship. That's a big problem because that's what I covenanted to. What could I do better? And if you can't work it out, get help. Can I tell you, it is normal to need help. In families, it is normal to need help in marriages. It is less normal not to need help. You are, when two people get married, they're two sinners marrying each other. And so, sinners are, one thing sinners are good at is sinning. And sin has consequences. And so, in families, sin can have devastating consequences, and sometimes it can get so confusing that you don't know what to do. And yet, you know what often happens? Is we're so proud that we don't ask for help until we're about ready to to leave. And so, that's foolish. That'd be like going to the doctor, you know, when you're super sick and trying to fool the doctor into thinking you're not sick. You imagine you got like COVID, you're like, can't even breathe, and you're like coughing over everything, and you're holding in your cough as you're in there. And like before he takes your temperature, you're like putting ice cubes on your forehead and then uh, or in your ear or wherever they take your temperature and then he's like how are you you're like oh, fine I'm really fine and then you get out of the doctor and you're, you're, you know, your wife asks you how it went and you're like he totally doesn't know I'm sick isn't that awesome he, gave, he did nothing I'm fine we know that physically and yet some of us are like that spiritually we come to church and we think everybody's so much better than us And nobody else has problems. That is a lie. That is such a lie. That person next to you is a sinner, just like you're a sinner. And they struggle. Guess what? They sin. And they need help. Sinners need help. And so if you look at these commitments and you're like, ah, I'm not keeping them, get help. And that help may take a long time. But get help. Get encouragement. Evaluate your life. How are you thinking about marriage, the purpose of marriage? And then think about your, your, your families and think about some of those purposes of the family that I gave you and evaluate your family and where you're falling short, where you're like, my, my family, I've taught my kids the wrong way to deal with conflict for 18 years and I've just made their life really hard because I've taught my kids they are the center of the world. This is what actually a lot of... You realize this is what's happening in a lot of families, right? A child comes out of the womb, and the child wants to be the center of the world. And so the child's job, in his mind, is to get everybody else to believe about him what he already believes about himself. I am the center of the world. That's why he throws stuff on the floor when he's a baby. He's like, let me throw this on the floor and see if I can teach my parents to do what I want whenever I want them to do it. And then the mom comes over. She's like, oh, they can put it up there. He's like, let me try it again. The mom's like, oh, let me put it up there. He's like, this is, this is how I like it. This is how it's supposed to work. And for 18 years, the mom is teaching the child that. And then he gets out in the world. And what does he find out? He's not the center of the world. He throws stuff on the floor. And people are like, what's your problem? And he gets mad and angry. And starts breaking all the relationships around him. And he's responsible for that. But you know who else is responsible for that? You. You taught him that. You taught him that fairy tale view of the world. 
And so where you look at your families and you see, you know what, we're not, we're not this kind of family that God wants us to be, repent. There's a Savior for sinners. There's a Savior for bad husbands. There's a Savior for bad wives. There's a Savior for bad parents. His name is Jesus. Jesus came to save sinners. He didn't come to save people who are so proud they can't admit they're sinners. He didn't come to save people who deny all their sin. And every time it's brought up, they're like, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. He came to save repentant sinners. And so if you look at your families and you feel a little conviction, I know it hurts and it's shameful and you wish it wasn't that way. But I promise you, Jesus came for people like you if you'll take your sin to him. Repent of it and ask him to transform you and make a plan to pursue God's priorities. You're not responsible for everyone else in your, your family in the same way as you are responsible for yourself. Obviously, uh, you can't change all the people around you. But as you think about the kinds of things that we're talking about today, as you think about what God says about marriage, what God says about family, begin with thinking about yourself. What does God want me to do to be a better husband to be prepared to be a better husband, to be a better father, to be a better wife, to be prepared to be a better wife, to be a better spouse. And uh, what can I, where can I start? Let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you so much for your word. It is, uh, it's like a light for our eyes. And uh, we know that we've lived in darkness so long that the darkness sometimes seems normal. But thank you that you turn on a light in the midst of this darkness and we don't have to go and be as confused as the world is about these really basic things. And you want us to have marriages and families that shine. And Lord, we admit that too often they haven't and they don't and we ask for your forgiveness. But at the same time, we don't want to give up and we pray that, uh, Lord, we can do better and we can, that you'll help us to take steps, whatever steps we can take to really having uh, marriages and families that are unique because they're the kinds of marriages and families uh, that, you, uh, that you want. And uh, we pray this, Jesus, in your name. You're the only one who can do this. Amen.